0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Please join me in in welcoming Werner Herzog to the Pollock Theater. And let's get going with some questions because I know you'll have some of your own. Um, Your film is a homage to Murnau's classic, and aimed explicitly to affirm a bond between uh, Weimar and New German cinema. Can you tell us why you decided to bring this particular Murnau film back to life, so to speak?
1: Well, it's not so much Weimar. I don't care much about that. But uh, the uh, young German filmmakers in the 60s uh, had no father generations with whom we could connect. They were either in exile or they perished in concentration camps. Or uh they sided with the uh Nazi ideology and created films for uh, for the Third Reich. So <clears throat> we we had no no one who would somehow uh, build a bridge to German film culture. So it was more the the generation of the grandfathers that uh, was important for us or so in particular for me. And since I did uh Nosferatu as an homage to Murnau, I felt like uh, having reached solid ground, like crossing a, a river with murky waters and treacherous eddies and all of a sudden there was a feeling of, of being safe. And, and of course uh, there was this kind of deficit. Uh, uh, Nosferatu probably was my 20th film Uh, Maybe it's hard for me to count, but uh, it it was not um, uh, not one of the very early ones.
0: Right. right. Well, let's talk a little bit. uh, We talked this afternoon. I'm sorry, some of you missed that about significant differences between Bram Stoker's Dracula and Murnau's film. So, for instance, where Stoker's novel evokes Jack the Ripper, who operated in London in Mm the 1880s, Murnau's film conjures up the medieval. Europe of uh, the plague. But what comes into view in Stoker's original Dracula, as much as Murnau's film, is Western Europe's relationship to Eastern Europe, uh, the Slav people in general and those of the Balkans in particular, a world the West had for centuries studied with uh, fascinated antipathy. How did you view the vampire figure and the theme of contagion in your film? Because I think it does operate differently.
1: Well, sure, but it's a little bit too complex how you're asking. Mm-hmm. Uh, my relationship to uh, Bram Stoker has been uh, very easy to decipher. I don't like his book very much. I think it's, <laughs> it's very mediocre literature. However, there are certain things and it doesn't have so much with uh, 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 juxtaposition of Germanic people in Slavic or whatever, in gypsies in my film... There are gypsies who actually, I think, spoke Roma. I never knew what they said. I just asked them to, to say some sort of text, more or less what, mm-hmm. what I wanted them to say, but I never had a, a translation. So it's not that uh, what impressed me about uh, Bram Stoker, about his Dracula, is that uh, we have permanent, constant use of means of communication, they communicate through uh, Edison cylinders. They speak messages and send these messages out. They use a telephone. I mean the early telephones, uh, the very prototypes of telephones, the very prototypes of telegrams. The very, no, telegram was, uh, was longer in use already. But it's a, it's a permanent uh, use of means of communication in a way. It's almost like predicting or foreseeing a communication age, mm-hmm. and out of using these uh, instruments of communications comes a very da- a deep darkness and a deep solitude. It's very much about solitudes, and that's uh, a strange and strong side about uh, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Of course, uh, Murnau stole uh, from him and had trouble with copyright. Mm-hmm. That's why he had to name it Nosferatu and Count Orlok in his case. And, um, and, and he used different names. And the funny thing is that when, when I made my, started to make my film, the Murnau Foundation, who owns now the rights of the film, wanted to charge me copyright. And I said, mm-hmm. Murnau himself stole it and got in trouble yeah. and couldn't show the film. So I'm a thief, thief without loot. Yeah. Face it, and then later, uh, not very long ago, ten years ago, somebody, a real, real pig, bought, uh, got in cahoots with the heirs of Galen, the screenwriter, yeah. and wanted to charge me uh, uh, decades later for uh, using the screenplay by Galen. And of course, when you look at the screenplay of Galen in my film, there's such fundamental dis- differences that. There was no chance. And I said, sue me. Uh, try it. Good luck to you. You will fail. And they didn't sue me. So I, I cannot be intimidated easily.
0: It is wonderful irony. Yeah.
1: No, it's not irony. It's just straightforward. Uh, uh, lower No, I, I would lower my head and charge. Your
0: film was released in two language versions, a German language version and an English language version, not unlike the practice that was common in the early late 1920s and early 30s, um, when the coming of sound initiated a short run but significant process of producing foreign language versions of the same film. I've read that you consider the German language film to be the most authentic as opposed to the English version seen more widely by audiences at the time, I believe. But yeah. could you tell us why you think the German version is more authentic? We didn't see that. Because
1: it it has to do with uh, my culture and the culture of most of the actors, except uh, Isabella Gianni, who spoke uh, no German. She would speak French and English, so sometimes she would speak English. But uh, in many occasions, and I had to do an English version because at that time 20th century fox uh, was very fond of me and they wanted to have a three pictures deal with me uh, nosferatu Wojciech, and fitzgeraldo <clears throat> and i i had my doubts that this uh, deal whatever function of course it functioned with nosferatu but uh, and and they didn't produce it they only gave an advance guarantee Today they claim that they produced it. It's not true. If they, if anybody tells you that, it's a lie. Um, and it wasn't that much money either. It was something like twenty-five percent of the finances. All the rest I had to mm-hmm. to raise myself. And the French were in it, who were even worse uh, than twentieth-century uh, <laughs> Fox. And uh, and then it came to discussing Fitzcaraldo and. It was kind of odd because uh, I was invited to a session where all the big shots of 20th Century Fox and their legal councils were there and and they uh, wanted me to explain how I would do the film. I said, yeah, I know the Peruvian jungle and I'm going to do it there. Uh, And they said, yeah, but... uh, that's bad jungle. And I asked gentlemen, what's a good jungle then? <laughs> and they proposed uh, the botanic garden in San Diego. <laughs> and and when, it, when it came to moving a ship over the mountain, and it's a big one, it's really huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said, how are you going to move it over a mountain? And I explained how I would do it without uh, m- much modern technology like Stone Age people. And they immediately proposed what I later called the plastic solution. Why don't we build a plastic replica, something like uh, 10 feet long, and move it over a studio hill or over a hill in the (laughs) botanic garden? And I said, that's not how it's going to happen. And they said Werner to me. But all of a sudden, they were kind of frosty and called me Mr. Herzog from a certain point in the discourse, and I, I knew I was going to be alone. And uh, concerning 20th Century Fox, I I knew I was going to be alone, and the real cultural nexus would be uh, my, my own culture. That makes sense. And that's what you saw tonight. And by the way, the English version, some uh, scholars have figured out, yeah, there's tiny little things, uh, I think, 50 seconds bit, a few bits are tiny, different or shorter in the English version. I do not recall and I think it didn't damage the film.
0: No, no and that kind of analysis doesn't the, sound that interesting. The English either. version doesn't yeah.
1: damage the movie. Yeah.
0: Um, your collaborations with Florian Fricka and Popovol extend beyond Nosferatu to a handful of films. With Fricka, in his capacity both as um, actor and a musician and a composer, can you talk about how your work with him over many years resulted in this soundtrack? Um, and what, was the desi- what were the desired effects for the soundtrack? And what was your collaborative process uh, with Fricke? Uh
1: Well, there's a, there's a couple of layers of questioning. Uh, m- my relationship uh, was, uh, number one, friendship. And I, I really respected him very deeply. And I, I admired him as a musician, uh, and And we would uh, sometimes uh, sit together and listen to things that he had composed and recorded and I said there's something which sounds right, but uh, let 's have a version of that that has a much bigger crescendo and has different instrumentation and so so we we were very uh, very much into technical things mm-hmm. but but otherwise, how shall i say and and as an actor well he i, I put him in uh, two films. One is Signs of Life, my first long film, where he plays a, a pianist. And in Kasper Hauser, he also plays a pianist, a, a blind pianist. Um, and he had this kind of angelic sort of looks to him. Uh, however, he, he could be really mean and vicious. We would play soccer, and, and he, he could play really foul. I mean, he, he, he would hit me hard. And, and in, a, in a surreptitious way, the referee wouldn't see it. And uh, so we, we had some, some uh, we sorted it out in the, in the parking lot later on <laughs> after the game. So that was the other side, but, but we loved each other. And uh, I'm uh, very sad that he uh, didn't um, live very long Although I told him when he was uh, 25 as so, I said to him, Florian, uh, you must die young. You should you should not undergo the indignity of age, of old age. You are the one who needs to die young. He actually died at middle age or so. Mm-hmm. And uh, I regret that I said that to him. How stupid. Uh, mm-hmm. I didn't know that he would die young fairly young, and um, so I'm very fond of him, and I owe him a lot, and he um, was one of my finest collaborators.
0: Could you tell us a little bit more about the production process? Um, What was your biggest challenge in making the film? Why did you choose to film in the town of Delft, and what can you tell us about 10,000 Rats?
1: Well, again, a couple of questions. Uh, I, I <laughs> we, always, can skip. we can go right yeah, to the I, rats. I liked, I liked the city of Delft a lot, although uh, there was a fraction against us of, of people who said uh, we have a rat problem for a long time, which we somehow managed now, and now there is somebody with uh, 10,000 rats. But I, I had plans where, I mean, full, absolutely foolproof plans In fact, we didn't lose a single rat, not one. Uh, But but it was a very elaborate system and I don't want to go into details. And uh, and there were people who, uh, we had the rats uh, in a a huge barn outside of of town and uh, there was trouble because the person who was uh, supposed to pay the farmers for buying the food for the rats didn't deliver the money and kept it for himself, so farmers were enraged and I had a battle with them and they came with a big caterpillar when we, when we took the rats and, and with this huge shovel went straight into the wind, windshield of our truck. So And, and there, there, was, there was a real, real, real significant battle and police came and they blocked the, the causeway. I actually with four or five team members rolled one of the police cars into the ditch so police was unfriendly with me and uh, <laughs> and 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 on and on and, and in this when you see the empty the empty place the big town square and mm-hmm. and at the end is the is town hall a very beautiful building and i actually retaliated at the end i i took revenge I mean really nasty with butter acid that's my weapon of choice in such cases it makes a place if if I had it here with a syringe and so and I would spray it around like a skunk you couldn't see a film for two years it's so bad yeah. now you have to you see when, when, you are, when you are making a film or if you are uh, an artist the natural enemy that comes up the first enemy is always bureaucracy and, and you, have to, you have to deal with bureaucracy uh, for example you have to be capable of misleading them with a forged shooting permit which I have done quite a few times i would enter I would enter town hall at five in the morning uh, by picking a lock uh, and uh, so, as a filmmaker you have to you have to know how to do these things <laughs> and I actually teach it uh, in my rogue film school, but I keep telling the students what i'm showing to you it's actually the only things that I teach all the rest is about a way of life and self reliance and whatever. I teach them only two things, and I get over with it in the first hour, uh, how to forge documents, how to pick locks. (laughs) And I tell them, since we are in semi-public, you have to read my face. Read my face. This is how you pick the lock. Uh, But of course, you will only uh, forcefully enter into your own office, into your own property Look at my face, because you left your passport locked in there and misplaced the key, and you have to take the, the international flight to Europe. You have to get hold of your passport. Read my face. You are entering your own office in your own office only.
0: To give them confidence.
1: No, to uh, to avoid legal trouble. That I'm teaching. <laughs> that I'm teaching something. Uh, something uh, in, in conspiracy to do something illegal.
0: So tell us about working with Klaus Kinski. <laughs> yeah. I think um, you know he's it's an amazing performance uh, yeah. and and especially since he would be judged against Max Shrek's incredible performance from in the Murnau film but it's really quite amazing and it, and I hope yeah. we talk a little bit later about how he's humanized in a certain or there's
1: something Well that was my yeah. my way to do it because in uh, Murnau's film Max Shrek he's just like an insect he doesn't the vampire doesn't have any emotions doesn't have any soul i always wanted a vampire different who um is deeply uh, agonized by not being capable to um, participate in human things like death or uh daylight or love mm-hmm. or uh, all sorts of of, of human emotions and human activities. So it's uh, uh, Kinski's a vampire who deeply, uh, who is deeply agonized mm-hmm. by not being able to to love uh, a woman. Mm-hmm. And that was always clear. Of course, Kinski was, as usual, was the ultimate pestilence. Very hard to, to handle him, but that was always uh, mm-hmm. the same. We knew that, uh, but Everybody had forgotten how bad he was. and So normally all the other actors would turn against me. How can you do that to us to have such a, such a madman on the set? And my own crew would turn against me. How can you do that to us again? So my argument was always uh, wait until we finish the film. The only thing that counts uh, is what you see on the screen, and it doesn't matter whether we had uh, terrible days together in threats and uh, uh, and um, unple- the, the most unpleasant. I mean, the young Marlon Brando, who everybody knows was the ultimate pestilence, was only was only kindergarten against <laughs> against Kinski. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, while this is a horror film, and I think everybody underst- felt it in the audience, it's also humorous in many instances, sure, especially yeah. when Jonathan, well, not only, but especially when Jonathan first uh, dines with the vampire in his castle. So, what would you say about the relationship between humor and terror in this film?
1: I wouldn't say it, humor and terror. Uh, pretty much all my films have a, have a good amount of humor in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even in some films where you... Where you know you shouldn't even contemplate laughing where you where you bite your own tongue and you laugh like even dwarfs started small it's a film which is uh, really the gloomiest of gloom and and terrifying and anarchic and destructive, and people laugh, and I'm glad that they laugh because it's so surreal and so so crazed uh, mm-hmm. and uh it's, it's not a normal humor, as you would have it, in an Eddie Murphy movie. It's a different type, uh, a strange, dark humor that I c- cannot really explain to myself easily, but I, um, I think I have it in me uh, to, to have some very funny stuff. Yeah. You see it in "The Bad Lieutenant." I mean, people laugh more, people laugh more than in an Eddie Murphy film. And I'm glad about that. Uh, it 's strange because everything everybody believes uh, uh, i 'm this kind of gloomy, dark uh, doomsday saying uh, uh, Teutonic filmmaker number one i 'm not Teutonic i 'm Bavarian and number two in <laughs> number two uh, there 's a lot of humor in almost all my films
0: yeah, one of the things we 're trying to really bring home in the series is that you know uh, Weimar cinema, new German cinema, is not all dark. That that humor is very much a part of the tradition. And I think there's some in small ways, even the Renfield character, where he's crazy, of course, and yeah. at first, you know, his hysterical laughing, I mean, it's funny, but, and you think, oh my God. But then there's a moment, it moves over into something else.
1: Yeah, sure. And and of course, uh, the, the actor who plays a part of Renfield he had this strange, crazy laughter in him. Yeah. Roland Topor, a great artist and a, and a, a writer, he, he wrote uh, mm-hmm. uh, for the stage. And I discovered him uh, at a festival uh, and I saw him on a, on a video screen in some corridor and there was a man who said a sentence and then had this cra- after almost every sentence had this crazy laugh. And I said, "Who is this? Who is this? This is extraordinary." And I met him, and it was turned out Roland Topo, of whom I knew nothing, but of course, I, I started to like and respect him very deeply, and he had this natural craze mm-hmm. in in him in a way, so it was not very hard to elicit mm-hmm. this kind of surreal laughter from him mm-hmm. he He had it in him. Mm-hmm. And I think I think uh, his parents uh, or he was as a child survivor of a concentration camp and he said to me from from that kind of stuff that's where I got my laughter from Mm. (laughs) and I had the feeling man yeah this is this is a deep uh, a, a deep source for for surreal laughter. And only he is allowed to laugh. No one else.
0: I just want to shift a little bit because I think one of the key differences, and a really interesting difference, and this is 1979, yeah. this is new German cinema, and it's, it's Lucy's role in the film that here is so different, I think, than Murnau's v- version or any other version. Um, unlike Nina, or Ellen, in Murnau's film, um, Lucy's mm-hmm. emotional integrity and capacity for preserving her imaginative belief yeah. in the midst of death and chaos are never diminished. And in fact, it's, it's almost like a woman's got to do what a woman's got to do. I mean, you know, you can't, the scientist, between science and yeah. superstition, she know, she knows what she needs to do. She has to save the human race. And, um, what, and so she becomes much more active in that scene at the end in the square is really significant, I think, um, as she's navigating the space herself, that we've seen um, Nosferatu himself navigate earlier in the mm-hmm. in the dark, but she's much more central and much more um, um, has much more agency, it seems to me, than in.
1: That's true. Yeah, I never thought about it, but uh, when I look back at uh, the film, which, by the way, I haven't seen for a quarter of a century, that's why I sat through. To understand what the hell did I do at that time? Uh, she, uh, yes, it's true. She is more and more prominent, and at the end, she she com- completely dominates the film. And it's not so in, in Murnau's film. That's correct. It, seem, it
0: seems like you know that somehow you know you are making this film in the late '70s, um, and feminism was a pretty potent world force. And she becomes this very, as I said, a, a different kind of heroine. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, but it, but I, I don't mean to read but, too but much women, in it. But I did women think
1: women were always underrepresented, uh, yep. whether it uh, be the late seventies or, or until today. And this is why I, I welcome uh, uh, filmmakers or actresses in that are newer. For, for example, there's a wonderful film out now, or will be out fairly soon. It's called The Rider by a young uh, Chinese-American woman, Chloe Zhao. You should see the film. It's probably going to be released uh, something like uh, March or April next year through Sony Classics. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, almost out of nowhere, there's a young woman who uh, does a definitive film about cowboys and rodeo riders uh, in South Dakota. And she's a woman who... Uh, only spoke Mandarin, growing up in Beijing until she was ten or eleven, and moved to London and then to the United States. So, I, I like emerging, emerging women, and not in a feminist, not in a way that the feminists would would welcome them. That's a that's an easy route to to invite them. Uh, in in a way, uh, I like the self-made the self-made women who who just couldn't care less whether there was a male dominated world around in cinema uh, and and she could never care less about that and i i really like that same thing with uh, strangely enough uh, practically all my films feature films and many of my documentaries about uh, men and only recently uh, leading central characters, females. But that's uh, almost like a new discovery for me. And I ask myself, uh, well, did I have any stories when I was 22 or so to make a film about mm-hmm. a female character? And my answer is, no, I didn't. Otherwise, I probably would have done it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, well, I guess in remaking this, you know, very classic and still popular film, that seems to be one of the significant changes that she is this much yeah, more powerful. It's not centered. a remake.
1: It's, right. Uh, it's uh, as keeps you said it correctly. Yeah. It's more an homage. Right. To Murnau, and uh, it's not uh, transforming Bram Stoker's novel into a movie, nor is it right. uh, adapting or. or uh, copying uh, Murnau's Nosferatu, no, no, it, it has a strange life of its own and I can tell because uh, only two hours before uh, this film has started I saw Murnau's film. I've never seen both films with only an hour time in between and that's it has been very, very interesting mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm.
0: So could you say a little bit too, and, and on, on the Jonathan character, which also the ending of the film is yeah. very different than
1: that he turns yes. in, into a vampire. Mm-hmm. That doesn't exist in uh, Bram Stoker nor in Murnau, mm-hmm. uh, and he has uh, a mission to carry out, and Renfield has a mission, mm-hmm. go north to Riga, and uh, Jonathan Harker rides off into the distance. Um,
0: and they both come out of real estate deals.
1: Yeah. No, no, it's true. True, yes, yeah, I never thought about that, but it's a good observation. Um, yeah, it's. I, I don't know where where this idea came from, but it, uh, it was there, and it was uh, uh, there with a certain vehemence, and it was clear I would do it no matter what Murnau or Bram Stoker had done before. I couldn't care less.
0: It's also, though, in a way that Jonathan, your Jonathan character, there is something. I watching it, and I also watched. Yeah. I've taught both films back to back before too, but it's been a while, and I watched them today yeah. too. But Jonathan, um, at the beginning, he wants to do this real estate deal, and you know, he says because Lucy deserves a better, a yeah. better, uh, you know, and and yet where they live seems quite beautiful and comfortable. Sure, but it's but a no, nice he, place yeah. And she's like, "Don't go, don't go," but you know. He yeah. knows he's going to make make some some buck on this, so he's he's going to go, even mm-hmm. though you know Renfield tells him it might cost you a little blood. And so there's something about the ending. I mean, on the one hand, it's that um, it seems to me, at least, that I mean, there's some hubris in the Jonathan character here that he doesn't he he he's not satisfied with what he has, um, and goes on this you know it goes on this journey. Um, Whereas Lucy is the one with, I think, uh, as I said, more agency of her own. Um, I'm thinking of the scene where, you know, and then of course Nosferatu is, um, you know, death isn't the worst. Worse is the life lived in dullness and daily futility without love. The absence of love is the most abject pain. So, I mean, the life not lived, you know, which mm-hmm. Jonathan, the real estate broke, the life not lived. Yeah. But that, that can never be banished. From human experience, so the vampire can't die with with the stake, or mm-hmm. you, the ending isn't definitive. It it it's, it, it continues, and yeah. it isn't simply evil in but the world. The, uh, but
1: but you're you're doing something which is uh, totally foreign to me. Character analysis, <laughs> I do not do it. Hmm? I don't do it while I write write a screenplay, nor when I shoot the film, nor when I edit the film, nor when I watch the film. Right. So, it's completely foreign and it's, it's something that you find in, in Hollywood screenwriting seminars, uh, this dull uh, three-act uh, insipid uh, structure of, of a screenplay, completely nonsense, complete, a complete stupidity, uh, which, shouldn't, uh, which shouldn't be uh, taken seriously. And, and of course, character development and story development. I've never developed a story. I just write it and I see a a film uh, as if you were seeing it uh, on a screen. So when I write a screenplay, I write it very, very fast because I see an entire film. There's no character uh, analysis or nothing like that. And I think it's a danger of of uh, Hollywood screenwriting, and it, it's a danger of academia.
0: Well, I'll take that danger. I'll take that dangerous route. I've been traveling it about three decades. But I, I really, it, to me, it's the way that, you're, that your Nosferatu really, in interesting ways, rewrites the vampire myth, even though there's all kinds of vampire films with a more profound, there's something more profound that, you're, that the, the changes that you made and, uh, and and in whatever yeah. conscious or unconscious way i just wanted to remark on that
1: yeah i think uh, when when i saw uh, max schreck who is really formidable and uh, kind of scary and uh, an hour later i see kinski yeah. on the screen and i think there was never a vampire of his caliber and i think it will take a, a, a century until we get another vampire of of his yeah of his magnitude and of his strangeness and intensity. Mm -hmm. There's been nobody. When you look back at all the vampire films, uh, none of them, none of them comes even close to Kinski. Mm -hmm. I agree. So may his poor soul rest in peace. Uh, He has given us something that is totally unique. Mm -hmm. I
0: agree. Well, I'm sure that there are members of the audience who have questions, Uh, Thank you, Werner. Um, Your career has been incredible, so we're all blessed. Uh, Question for you. I thought the casting of Isabel Adjani as Lucy was uh, brilliant. Can you talk about what it was like working with her on the set and what her experiences were like?
1: Uh, Well, Isabel Adjani, I I wanted her uh, for the film because I had the feeling she was uh, the perfect antagonist for the vampire, somebody really uh, with a powerful presence on the screen, and of course great beauty. Uh, and because of her, it was easier to deal with the French, because the uh, French were delighted that there was a French actress in it. But um, I think she she has uh, an enormous presence um, and radiation on on the screen. However. To work with her always uh, required a lot of attention, more attention uh, sometimes than even Kinski because she, um, at that time, and I don't know, I I heard about other films as well, uh, has always been extremely insecure. Mm -hmm. I mean, so insecure that... She wouldn't uh, want to step in front of a cam- camera, so my my role was to to calm her down, give her complete reassurance, and uh, for example, when before she was uh, in front of the camera, I would also always uh, tell her, uh, "Can you hold still for, for a moment?" I would step very close. And, and she would see that I would scan her face very, very carefully, very quickly and carefully, carefully and I would say, beautiful, beautiful, this is really beautiful. And I would ask, may I touch your hair? And she would say, yes, of course. And I would uh, just move a strand of hair out of her forehead. And she knew I, I was really looking uh, after her and, and wanted to make her look at her best and be at her best. Uh, and very often, uh, what was interesting, she needed, and Kinsky, by the way, also needed uh, the kind of uh, intonation, the voice. Uh, and and I always do it in feature films, sometimes even in documentaries. It's when an orchestra is tuning, uh, and everybody is following. I think the uh, uh, the oboe is is giving chamber tone A and all the other instruments are tuning in i i, I say to kinski klaus uh, give me the first line and i say oh this is way too loud low 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 uh, and uh, and I, I would find the right intonation the right not just the pitch it's uh, something much deeper inside and i would ask isabel and and i said don't worry if i Uh, if I come back to you right away and say, no, 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 Uh, give it to me again, but take your time, take your... When you answer, take your time, 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 and then you say it. And say it with a a quiet, quiet emphasis. Let me hear that one sentence. And I said, fine, so uh, beautiful, and I would do... You see, I'm the last one who uh, would move out between the actors... On one side and the technical apparatus on the other side. That's why as a, as a director, and you normally do not see it, I do this late. I would be very close to them and I would do this in the last moment. And I could tell, I could tell she knows her dialogue. She's right. She finds herself quite fine and good and strong and beautiful and and still I had the feeling it's a little too early and I procrastinate and then I would do the slate and move out so um it's a lot a lot of attention and uh, knowing the heart of men or in this case knowing the heart of a woman uh, and it's a very a, a very professional attitude that I that I have all the way into documentary films But uh, a very, very fine collaboration with her.
0: Was there any, if you could talk about the use of Wagner and you know the the sort of two grand uh, use of uh, Wagner Wagner and the two big myths, you know the Ring myth and the Dracula myth, and perhaps your thoughts about these two combined? Uh,
1: Yes, there is uh, Rheingold, a a piece of Rheingold by Richard Wagner. In it, uh, <clears throat> and it's very strange because Wagner was a very late discovery of mine. I uh, was completely disconnected from music between uh, 13 and 18. For five years, no music whatsoever for me. I blocked myself away from it like almost like an autistic child. And the reason was a little school tragedy that happened often to all of us. Uh, a uh, music teacher forced me to sing in front of the class and uh, I wouldn't do it and I refused and I held out for almost an hour and insulted him and and the uh, headmaster had to be called and they were debating whether I should be thrown out of school altogether and they held the class hostage they wouldn't let them out into intermission until I sang So it was really, really dirty. That was awful. I still feel the pain in me of that moment when I sang. And I knew I would never sing again in my life. Never, ever. Which uh, is true with the exception of completely out of tune happy birthday once in a while. (laughs) Uh, And uh, until today I cannot read music scores. But I have staged operas. I have staged operas. And I can't even read the music scores, but I'm very good in hearing and I would uh, uh, stage it completely absorbing the music and doing an opera is the transformation uh, of the world into music that's the essence of opera and uh, so I had to uh, I had to grow into it and uh, when I was out of school. There was this enormous void and vacuum of not having heard uh, music and not having engaged myself. And so I I went on my own voyage, much of it early, in the beginning very early music, uh, Heinrich Schütz, uh, Carissimi, uh, uh, Bach and others, and even earlier ones. And then back to quite modern composers, of course uh, Beethoven, And the very last I discovered, uh, or one of the very last Wagner, it's very odd how labyrinthic my uh, approach into music was. And uh, of course with uh, Florian Fricke, uh, a very lively sort of exchange about music. And he uh, would play things for me on the piano and... and, and, uh, uh, tell me, listen, listen to this one. Uh, and uh, uh, and then after he had played, let's say, some Chopin for me, he said, I, I really played that well. Where is he, Where is anyone else who plays it as well, like me? And and we, we loved these moments. There was always deep substance about it, but there's no deeper meaning about it. Uh, uh, about uh, incorporating wagner music in the film you see it would be uh, it would be too far fetched to read something of uh, a looming darkness and the approach of the nazi time and wagner who was in a way um, a stepping stone or a, a cultural sort of lead into um, into some, some aspects. You see, we, we cannot make uh, Wagner culpable for, uh, for Hitler, nor can we make uh, uh, Marx culpable for Stalin. That would be too far-fetched, but I, I have been asked about use of Wagner in a film like this, and, and there's no, uh, abs- for me, absolutely no ideology in this. This go on. Back there, yeah. The, the journey that happens in making a film uh, is quite often the point of a project. No, uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's the most unimportant of all. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. You see uh, exploring your boundaries, what, what a stupidity is that. And, and you see it among these extreme mountain climbers and the, the triple triathlon and all this nonsense that you see around. You see it on television. You see them in talk shows. I'm not one of those. I'm not one of those. I'm just a quiet soldier of cinema. Okay. (laughs) I'm sorry for interrupting you. No problem. (laughs) (laughs) In in some of your experiences, though, in making films, uh, the backstory is some of the most interesting aspects. For example, Fitzcarraldo... I think you had mentioned at some point life-threatening situations for some folks. So what? Can you can you tell us about some of your most memorable experiences uh, that didn't make it on the screen? Well, there is quite quite a few uh, very memorable instances. Birth of my children, for example, shouldn't be on film. It shouldn't be even on photos. Uh, i I find it very odd that friends of mine reported to me full of of ecstasy. I filmed the birth of my daughter. <laughs> I find it wrong for for the for some of the very essential things you should never even contemplate to take a photo or delegating the experience or delegating uh, the memory to uh, let 's say movie or celluloid or video and you can see it now I saw something very remarkable, a real paradigm of, of things. Uh, a photo of uh, a packed line of people and Pope Francis is coming along and, and blessing them and almost everyone, all the young people are turned with their backs to the Pope and with a selfie stick <laughs> and they are taking themselves and the Pope they never saw the pope because the pope passes by. They eventually see him from behind. But what I'm trying to say is, the delegating the experience, and I mean it would have been a meaningless encounter anyway. Number one, what does it mean for anyone to see the pope walking by and blessing you? Uh, it's probably not not that important. But um, uh, why uh, why do uh, does uh, uh, in particular, the, the very young generation delegate more and more and more of quasi-life experiences to to filming or celluloid or, or celluloid, not anymore, but to video and selfies and things like that. So the the experiences that I have, in, in a way, some of it are described, like Fitzgeraldo. There is a book uh, that I wrote. I wrote. Um, diaries at the time of uh, uh, the, the filming and uh, I published it uh, 27 years later it's real good prose and, and it, you, you do not find prose of that caliber very often <laughs> so, uh, I, it, but, but this is not delegating memories actually I, I wrote it because there was such immense pressure on me and one catastrophe after the other, and when I say catastrophe, I mean real catastrophes. Two plane crashes, small aircraft, uh, the camp that I built for 1,100 people, uh, and I got into a, uh, into the middle of a border war that broke out between Peru and Ecuador in my camp, was attacked and burned to the ground, and the leading character becomes ill after half uh, the filming and has to be sent to the United States, and his doctors wouldn't allow him to uh, return. And I had uh, Mick Jagger also in the film, who was phenomenally good. And I I, I had to start all over again. So, real catastrophes. And they do not count. The only thing is what what you see there. They are, in, in a way, scribbled down. And, of course, much of what's in the book is also fever dreams in the jungle, Uh, inventing inventing disasters, describing them, naming them, because by dint of naming them, I knew they wouldn't occur. Uh, So it's a very strange form of of writing prose Um, and delegating, delegating, let's say, the occurrence of any further catastrophe that I imagined uh, made a lot of sense. Um, This is a little more of a personal question. Yeah.
0: You mentioned some challenges
1: you face, uh, picking locks, faking permits, the plastic kind of style. My question is, when you, as a director or as an artist, when you are faced with some of these adversities, how do you Really overcome it, like in the Werner Herzog style, is it like the the fearless look or just you know this unabashful direction well, you, mm-hmm. well there's no no general rule you <coughs> uh, cinema is complicated uh when you are a sculptor, you are chiseling away from one block of of marble, and that's your obstacle. But in filmmaking, there's a lot of things: financing, and technical side, and actors, and uh, editing, and writing, and uh, distribution system. So, and all of it is very vulnerable. So, you have to brace yourself for for everything that's thinkable, even for the unthinkable. You better brace yourself. And for young filmmakers, I I keep saying. Um, Gain enough uh, understanding of the world, uh, and don't be afraid to go to the borderlines of legality. Sometimes, as you have a natural right to do a film, if you have a real fine project, uh, you you have a certain natural right that is impeded and obstructed by bureaucracy, for example, and you do things. Or I would do things that may be illegal, but I do things, only things that do not hurt anyone. You see, that's a key. You have to find your ethical borderline. And I always, very, very often I hear, I, uh, Herzog, must be a man who doesn't know, take no for an answer. Wrong. Wrong. When I see that something is not doable, I I would immediately... uh, Reconsider, find a solution that would be even an imaginative, imaginative, imaginary solution that would be even better than what was scripted and uh, preconceived as an idea. Um, <clears throat> there are many, many examples, but uh, a very good example. I did uh, films on death row in Texas and in a few two cases in Florida. and there's a very clear protocol. You have to write to the inmate, uh, and he or she has to invite you, and then next step is the warden has to agree, and if it's complicated cases, all the way up to the governor of the state, who could deny or allow you to do this. And in one case, uh, I was ready to travel uh, next day or so with a small crew and equipment to, to Texas, uh, the inmate was totally fine to talk to me on camera and I get an email from his attorney who says to me, I do not have the power to uh, talk my client out of filming with you, but I have to tell you, he, we number one, we have an ongoing last appeal. And second, my client has a tendency to say stupid, damaging things uh, on camera. Could you please reconsider? You know what? Twenty seconds later, I, I wrote back one half sentence: "Shooting is cancelled, Period. That was that. So uh, you you have to find uh, you have to find a, a, a balance. What what is a no, and what is a soft no, and what is a no uh, that comes out of stupidity? You, are, you see, there is a lot. A lot of what I call institutionalized cowardice, and you have it you have it in the uh, e and O insurances that dominate uh, much of uh, what is going on in finances in filmmaking, you have completion bonds and, and this is nothing but institutionalized cowardice. They try to avoid that they ever 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 have to step in to uh, be legally obliged to finish a film. Financially, if somehow things go completely awry and end somehow in a, in a fiasco, in a financial or organizational fiasco, so <clears throat> you have to be smarter than them, and you have to to exercise your natural right of fraud, uh, criminal energy, uh, whatever is in the book, theft, you just do it, uh, but as i said uh with a necessary framework of uh, uh of ethical behavior, it's not unethical if you steal a camera from if you if you take a camera from a there's twenty five cameras in your bank in your local bank if if you are managing to disguise yourself as a camera repair man and you you take the best of them and you use it for making a film, fine. Number one, they have 24 cameras left. And number two, in the next 20 years, no bank robber is, is coming anyway. So uh, you, 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 have to, you have to find the right balance, and you have to uh, you have, to have a, a certain amount of street wisdom, a part of what drives you to make a certain film what drives you to, to write a screenplay, to adopt a story, to uh, start shooting with, uh, with actors. So um, you, just, uh, you just do it. And of course, uh, film, young filmmakers, film students here, best of luck to all of you. Good night. Thank you. Thank you.